So I've talked about this before, but when I was in my early 20s, I had the most incredible privilege of being able to live in another country for an entire year. I lived in Nairobi, Kenya for the whole year, and uh, it was an amazing experience. I just got to say, I mean, it was, it was crazy. I, I went on uh, adventures. I ate weird stuff. Like, it was, the whole thing just completely blew my mind. I even I, I learned a very uh, useful Swahili phrase, and so if you ever find yourself in Kenya, just know this phrase. It's very useful. Wait, wait. So just use that, and then people will get a smile, and people will totally dig that. So um, that's yours to use uh, for whatever you want. So but of all the things that I learned in Kenya, I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, my whole life changed. But of all the things I learned, one of the things that probably surprised me the most was how much I learned about my own culture. Some of you have probably traveled internationally, and you know that when you're engaging with another culture, you end up learning a lot about your own. And so that's what happened to me when I was in Kenya. And what I was surprised by was how much my American individualism played itself out in the way that I interacted with other people. So I'm going to oversimplify, I'm going to way oversimplify, and this is never fair to do to paint with such broad brushes, but in general, in Kenya, folks are very communal and social. One of the things that I saw happen and I was amazed by is whenever someone would meet someone else, and they usually was, if, it was, if they were in the same tribe and they knew that because of the na their last name, um, they would not just be like, oh, hey, where do you work? They would start with, hey, where is your family from? Like, what village is your family from? And then they would say, okay, and so who's your, who's your great auntie and who's your, who's your uh, you know, uncle's cousin? And they would start talking until they finally found someone that they had in common. And what ended up, what I realized is they weren't, they viewed each other not as strangers, but as just very, very, very extended family. And so you can imagine, if you have that kind of a mentality where everyone around you is just a, an uncle or a cousin or a grandfather, I mean, if that's your mentality, it shapes the way that you see your community. And what ended up happening is I realized everybody there, not everybody, many of the people there had a really rich, deep social network, a social safety net to fall back on when they hit hard times. You'd have a whole community of people you could turn to, which is very different, in, in my opinion, than some of the ways that we're wired here. For example, uh, when, when someone loses a family member tragically, what is the, one of the things that we say often? It's, it's oh, let's Let's let them have their, they probably need their, their space. Let's, let's let them grieve, you know, they probably need to process through this alone. That's one of the ways that we tend to, to operate. In Kenya, it is the exact opposite. One of the pastors of Nairobi Chapel, when I was there, tragically lost his three-year-old child. It was an awful, uh, awful situation. Um, but the moment that that happened, the, the pastor's neighbors and friends and church members, they flooded into their home. They set up a tent in their front yard, and for the next three to four days, there was this constant rush of people who were there to cook and clean and, and just sit together and drink tea and talk, and they were never alone for a moment, this family. And I thought, wow, that is quite different from my experience of how we let people grieve in our culture, right? So I'm, just, I'm using that as an example to talk about just how deeply communal everything was. And again, I'm, I'm painting in broad brushes here, but the thing that, that struck me the most was how my own kind of hyper-individualistic culture had shaped the way that I engaged with other people. And one of the things that was pretty clear to me is that I did not have the same amount of social stamina as my Kenyan friends. 
They could be in, in conversations till all hours of the night. I stayed with a Kenyan host family, and they had over people all the time for dinner. And they would stay, and they'd sit in the living room and drink chai and talk and talk and talk, and on and on and on, and I would get exhausted by it. All I wanted to do was go back and hole up in my room and read a sci-fi book and play Close Combat 5 on my laptop, right? And by the way, if you know Close Combat 5, let's talk, because it's one of the classics. It's one of the best games ever, and I just don't have enough fellow Close Combat friends uh, to talk about it with. Anyway, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be alone because I didn't have the, the stamina to keep talking and having these kinds of conversations. Sure, I may have been a little bit introverted, but it was, it was more than just that. It was more than just introverted. I, 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 it was my lifestyle. It was how I was raised. It was what I knew. And so being immersed in Kenyan culture like that, it changed me in a lot of ways. But when it came to isolation, my own isolation, what it did most was open my eyes. <clears throat> I began to realize that my American culture was very isolated and very isolating. It had become uh, a pretty significant indicator of how we were operating as a culture. And when I came back home from Kenya, everything started to get a lot worse. Okay, so this was in 2005. 2005, I went to Kenya, and when I came home, this was before smartphones were a thing, right? This was before Netflix. This was uh, before introverting became a verb, like I'm just going to introvert tonight. This was before bailing on somebody, you know, bailing on, it's like, it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm not really feeling that well. I think I won't come tonight. You know, bailing before that became just so commonplace that it's like normal. And you know what else was before? It was before being bailed on was something we actually looked forward to. Like, oh good, I don't have to wear pants tonight, right? <laughs> this is, this is the culture that we're in. It was also before uh, social media, the big promise of social media started, you know, oh, it's going to bring us all together. We're all going to be one. We can connect with people all over the world, only to find out that social media has turned us into these, into these envious and rage-filled cage fighters. And, I mean, it's only pushed us farther apart. Oh, and you know what else this was before? There's one other thing. What was it? Oh, yeah, a pandemic, right? This was before a global pandemic forced us into our homes before it, it turned work and school into these digital Zoom meetings. I mean, shoot, I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, 2020, I think you're muted. Like, that to me sums up the entire year. Mel knows what I'm talking about. We've been in a lot of meetings, you know, the lead team, we've, we've talked a lot, and it's the, the funniest thing in the world is Mel's frustration when she realizes that yet again, she had forgotten to unmute her, her, uh, her mic. It's awesome. It's awesome. Um, so this was before all of this. And you know what else? This was before we had the ability to have hot food show up on our front door where we could choose to have contactless delivery. So you don't have to have any pesky interactions with any other humans to be able to have your meal delivered to your home. Things have changed. Things have changed. And in my opinion, when it comes to isolation and the, the individualism of our culture, things have only gotten worse. It's gotten really significant. Now, for those of us who, who are tempted to, to self-isolate, to be, you know, to focus on ourselves and we want to withdraw, well, the pandemic's just been a wonderful excuse. It's been a great reason for us to pull inwards. But for those of us who don't want to be isolated, who have been struggling with loneliness or, or uh, who have a desperate need for human interaction, who are finding themselves farther and farther apart from community, this pandemic has been like a nail in the coffin. This was a problem before the pandemic, and now it's crazy. Senior citizens, single parents, people with disabilities, 
foster families, frontline workers, on and on. You could probably name a thousand different uh, categories of people, people who don't have that big social safety net. Isolation has always been a problem in our individualistic culture, but now I believe it's becoming a crisis. It's a crisis. And here's why this is a problem. Here's why isolation is such a big deal. First of all, it literally kills you. It literally kills. There are, are more and more medical studies coming out that, that show that, there, that a lack of social engagement, deep chronic loneliness, it actually increases risks to your health as much as smoking 15 cigarettes every single day. The same effects to your health as smoking, like that much. It affects your sleep. It affects your cardiovascular system. It can affect your immune system. Being hyper lonely actually changes how well your body can respond to diseases. Look, if you are isolated, you are at a higher risk of premature death, period. So it's a problem because it, it is literally life and death. But it goes beyond just physical realities because it also starts to touch on the spiritual. Think about us as a church. We are the, the body of Christ in this world. We are meant to, to bring the love and the hope of Jesus to everyone. But from the very beginning of this whole movement that we're a part of, it was always meant to be done in community. We, are met, we, are, uh, we use our spiritual gifts together. We disciple and teach and correct one another together. We pray together. We worship together. That's why we put so much of an emphasis here at Grace on, on you getting into rooted and life groups because we believe that you will grow the best when you are in a community. We are spiritual family. And our message, it spreads the farthest and the strongest when we spread it together. It's not just an interpersonal thing. It's not just about health. The good news of Jesus depends on it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, which is, okay, well, if we're supposed to be together, then why did we close our doors for these last few months? I know some of you are thinking that. And, and the reality is we have had to wrestle with some of these different values because we also feel like we as the church have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable in our community. And so we had to make the very hard choice to not have in-person worship services and instead to do everything online. And you know what? I'll shoot straight with you. It's entirely possible that if things in Indiana get way worse with this pandemic, that we may have to go back to that for a season. So that's the reality. But hear me when I say this. Hear me when I say this. We cannot, we cannot allow a pandemic to lead our community further into isolation. Whether we are online or in person, we cannot use this as a license to drift apart because I am worried that if we let that happen, it, the damage could be irreparable. We have got to find a way in the midst of this very odd and crazy season that we are in to grow our community and to bring people out of isolation. And here's why. Because this isolation topic, it's not just some small little issue on the fringe. This, we believe at Grace, is one of the six broken places of our world. If you've been around Grace a long time, you know we talk a lot about the six broken places of the world. That is what we believe is one of the distinctives of our worldview, is the fact that we see our broken world. We see uh, separation from God. We see hatred. We see injustice. We see the decay of our planet. We see pain. And we see people isolated from one another. And we see that and we realize that world is broken. And Jesus wants to heal that. He wants to use us to heal that. And so we have dedicated ourselves to healing the broken places, and that includes isolation. And that's why we're talking about it now. Welcome to Hope Month. Hope Month 
at Grace is something that we started doing last year, and I, I plan on having us do it every year, where we are going to take a whole month and focus together on one of those six broken places. Last year, if you remember, last May, we talked about hatred, talked about the divisions between people and racism and all of that. It was intense. It was provocative. We had plenty of interesting feedback, but it was, it was our opportunity as a church to say, this is what we believe, and this is what matters, and how we're going to approach the, this broken place. Well, that's what I want this month to be as well. This is a chance for us to take a stand and say, this is who we are when it comes to isolation. And one of the cool things about Hope Month, the way that we do it, is that it's a unified sermon series. So that means that our grace kids, our life groups, our adults, everybody's going through the same content together. We're kind of saturating the market with Hope Month uh, whenever we do this. So we're going to be, you know, talking about this stuff on our podcast between Sundays. We're going to be putting out supplemental content on YouTube. We're going to be, you know, we're going to be engaging with this stuff all month, and hopefully you're going to be able to grow as we do, as we as, as a community grow. So, by the way, again, just in case you didn't catch this from Mel, it's all going to be on our website, gracechurch.us slash hope, and you can find it all there. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Okay, so enough, enough setup. I mean, you, you all know the problem that we're dealing with here, so how do we fix it? How do we end isolation in Jesus' name? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for these next five weeks. For now, I want us to start with what I think is the beginning of this whole journey? What is the, the first step you take to heal isolation? And so to do that, we are going to look at one story of how Jesus interacted with a very isolated person in his time. And I think we're going to see the first principle that we'll be able to operate with in our lives as well. So please turn with me to John 4, starting in verse 4. Um, you can use whatever Bible is convenient for you. I don't know if we even have house Bibles right now, do we? Did we get rid of those? I don't even know. Some ha there's probably some house Bibles lying around. If not, you can use a Bible on your phone or, or just listen to me talk. But um, John 4, starting in verse 4, just a quick little bit of setup. Jesus and his disciples at this period in his ministry, they are going from Judea, which is the southern part of, the, of, you know, the, of Israel, where Jerusalem is. That's the religious center. And they are traveling up to, Ju uh, to Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. It's where his disciples are mostly from. And it's where he did most of his ministry. Now, normally, th the people who lived in the land between Judea and Galilee, the Samaritans, Normally, uh, the Jews would try to avoid going through their territory. They did not, they weren't on the best of terms. And so uh, normally they'd just take this really long route around. But for whatever reason, Jesus and his disciples decide to go straight through. And so this is what happened. Verse 4 of John 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food, and the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, uh, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, uh, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? 
And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Well, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Hmm. Okay, so let's stop there for just a moment. So Jesus meets this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day, and that should make you know, warning bells go off in our mind. We should be having red flags going off all over the place. I know it doesn't seem like that. We read that and we're like, what's the big deal? Back then, this would have been like, whoa, caution flag, look out. This is wild. This is crazy. And here's why. A couple reasons. First of all, as I already mentioned, Jews and Samaritans, not the best of friends. They didn't like each other. I'm not going to get into why today, but if you are interested, go check out the, the app notes in, our, in, our, in Grace Church's app, and you can see, or, or on the website, you can see a little bit more there. But suffice it to say, they didn't like each other. There was some bad blood between them. And so Jesus, who was a, a Jewish rabbi, a good Jewish rabbi, he should have been steering well clear of anybody who was Samaritan, because in their mindset, Samaritans were basically like half Gentile, and it was very likely that if you came in contact with a Samaritan person that they would affect your spiritual health. They would make you spiritually unclean, at least for a while. So if you're a good Jewish rabbi, you keep your distance, okay? Second, she's a woman. And now, I hate the fact that this was the case, but back in the ancient world, women were considered very often to be spiritually unclean on a regular basis. And so, if you're a good Jewish man, it's best to steer clear of women. And so, there was actually a practice of Jewish rabbis who were trying to be super careful where they wouldn't speak publicly to any woman, including their own wife or, chi or, or children, or their own daughters. They wouldn't talk to any woman because it was just, you know, better safe than sorry. I'm going to keep my distance. So, okay, what is Jesus doing here? That's kind of crazy. Finally, there, there's one other aspect to this that kind of raises red flags, and it's this. This woman is coming out to this well completely alone, and it's the middle of the day. Okay, again, we don't draw water from wells very often, but here's what was going on. Most of the time in the ancient world, and even today, if you were to go to some developing world countries, you'd see this. Um, most of the time, the women who are going to draw water draw it together and they do it in the morning or in the evening when it's cool out. First of all, when you go together, it's way safer. You're not going to be, you know, nothing's going to happen to you because you've got a whole group together. And you don't want to go out in the middle of the day. That's like baking heat, and it's exhausting, and it's, and it's uncomfortable. You want to go in the morning or in the evening when you can enjoy the breeze and have it be a little bit more comfortable. So what's this woman doing out in the middle of the day, and why is she alone? Well, we don't know for sure, but you can start to speculate. Was she an outcast of some kind? Was she, was she sick? Did she have some disease? Was she ashamed to be seen with other people? We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that she's isolated. She is alone. And with all the other stuff I just mentioned, this is shaping up to be a pretty scandalous situation. So how does Jesus respond to her? How does, he, how does he respond when this woman comes walking up? Does he say, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. Nope, I'm kind of a big deal. Can't be seen with you. This is getting real scandalous. No, he doesn't say that at all. He doesn't, doesn't even go there. What does he say? He says, can I have a drink? 
Again, is, it, is this popping off like red flags in your mind? Because for a Jewish rabbi to essentially be saying that he wants to put his lips on a cup that this Samaritan woman has touched, he's basically throwing caution to the wind here. He's saying, yeah, I want to be spiritually unclean because of you. Like, it's absolutely nuts. It's absolutely wild. And even the woman, I mean, she's taken aback too. She says, you're asking me for a drink? Like, what, are, you, are you out of your mind? The question the story wants us to, to ask is, why would Jesus put himself at risk like this? I think the answer is in verse 10. In verse 10, he says this to the woman. He says, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. If you only knew the gift that God has for you. Jesus wants to give this woman living water. Why? Well, what you look at in this moment is Jesus seeing an isolated woman, but not seeing an unclean Samaritan, not seeing someone he should be keeping his distance from. No, who did he see when he saw this woman? He saw a child of God. He saw a, a, you know, a, a person who deserved life, a person who, who deserved dignity. Jesus understood in this moment that the path out of isolation for this woman begins with dignity. And that's kind of the big idea for this whole message. The path out of isolation begins with dignity. That's where it starts. Dignity. Woman, you are not alone. You are not alone if you only knew what was in store for you. Jesus saw who she was and not who the world said that she was. Okay, so let's keep reading and, and see what happens next. Uh, basically, the woman has said, yep, sign me up. I want some of this living water. And then, well, this is kind of unexpected. This is what Jesus says next. He says, all right, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you're not even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Well, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming where it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, well, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. All right, so this first verse here uh, where he starts talking to her, verse 16, it seems a little bit jarring to me. After this beautiful moment of him seeing this woman for who she is and, and loving her, all of a sudden he starts like getting on her case for having all these husbands? Isn't that, doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? It seems like it's a big tonal shift where all of a sudden he's like, hey, you, you floozy, I know who you really are. I know you're not a good person. I, had, I was looking forward to using the word floozy. So uh, I think I'm going to say hussy later too. So, um, you know, you're, you're a bad person. You shouldn't have all these husbands. That seems really weird to me. 
Maybe it does to you as well. I was always taught growing up that, that the reason this woman was isolated is because she was a bad girl. She was a bad girl and she deserved to be alone because she had been immoral and, and you know, sleeping around with all these men. But I, I wonder, I wonder, the more that I've understood the ancient world, the more I've realized that women in that time had very little power, very little power. So much so that when it came to things like divorce, women were not allowed to initiate a divorce at all. It was only the men who could initiate a divorce. So if she's been divorced from these men, inevitably what that means is that it was the men who did the divorcing. Now we don't know, maybe she was unfaithful and that's why they did it, but, but no matter what, she was the one who was being rejected again and again and again. Or the other possibility is maybe her husbands, these prior husbands, had all died. There's some indication that some uh, traditions had it that if you were married to a guy and then he died, uh, you'd automatically then have to be married to his brother. And then if he died, you'd be married to his brother. And so it's entirely possible that this woman is actually at the receiving end of a wave of, of uh, death and misery and grief. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about caring for widows. And you know why? Because it was rough to be a widow in that ancient world. So perhaps, perhaps, she was actually someone who was in a desperate place. Perhaps she was living with this other man instead of being married to him because she had no other choice. Because she was caught in desperation and she needed to be able to survive. Perhaps. Maybe she was isolated, not because she was a bad person, not because she was a floozy, but because life had chewed her up and spit her out. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe it's possible that the women didn't want to go to the well with her because they thought she was cursed. Just too much bad stuff was happening to this woman. We don't know. All we do know is this. Jesus did know who she was. He did know her story. She didn't even have to tell him. He knew what was going on. Whether she was immoral or whether she was a victim of, of injustice or grief or somewhere in between, maybe some mix of those things, whatever the case, Jesus knew who she was. He knew what her isolation was like for her. And you, you know what he did? He wanted her to find life. He knew who she was, and he wanted her to find life. Jesus saw this woman. He treated her with respect, and he offered her hope. I'll say it again. The path out of isolation begins with dignity. With dignity. That's what Jesus offered her. Okay, let's, let's finish this story, and I want to I show you what happens with this woman's newfound self-worth. In verse 27, Just then the disciples came back, and they were shocked to find Jesus talking to a woman. But, I love this, none of them had the nerve to ask, uh, what do you want with her? Or, uh, Jesus, why are you talking to her? No, the woman left her water jar beside the well, and she ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. I love this. I love this, this turn in the story because in just a few moments with Jesus, this woman went from an isolated nobody, possibly at the bottom rung of society's ladder, to essentially an effective evangelist. Someone who talks about the good news of Jesus and others listen. 
Because of her, this entire village came out to meet Jesus. Dignity allowed this woman to begin practicing in her purpose, to begin discovering her destiny. And I love the imagery here. When you, when you put this story in your mind's eye, it begins with this woman walking alone, carrying her water jug in the heat of the day all by herself to this well. And the story ends with the same woman coming back to this well, but this time she is surrounded by her neighbors. Isn't that beautiful? All it took was compassion from somebody who was willing to set aside cultural expectations, to risk their own reputation so that they could offer dignity to someone who was alone. The path out of isolation begins right here. It begins with dignity. Now, I started this message talking about the reality that isolation is epidemic in our culture. I talked about the fact that this pandemic is making it worse. If we are going to be the church, the, the hands and feet of Jesus, well, then we have got some work to do. And I'm going to say this again, and I know this is uncomfortable for some of us to hear, but the answer to this is not more in-person worship services. Yes, it's important for us to gather. We've got to worship together. This is vital for the life of faith, but, but there are people in our world today who either cannot or will not be, be caught dead in this building right now, and we've got to think of ways beyond our, our ordinary, you know, traditions to reach these people with the dignity that they deserve. We've got to get creative here. We're going to have to think bigger. Now, the isolation that Americans are facing today, it may not be the same kind of isolation as this woman at the well. Or maybe it is. Maybe it is. But at, but at the end of the day, healing that broken place of isolation, for us, it requires the exact same posture that it did for Jesus. The posture of dignity. That's the first step if we want to see people begin to find freedom from their isolation. Now, there are other steps, and that's what the rest of this series is about. We're going to talk about five key concepts that all play a role in healing the broken place of isolation. Dignity, hospitality, unity, proximity, and family. That's what the next few weeks will be. And you know it's going to be a good series because all of those things end in why. So that's how you know. It's like, well, this is obviously, uh, obviously going to be a good one. Uh, but here's what makes this, se this series a little bit unique. Um, I just kind of want to paint the picture here because there's, we're, we're doing something a little different. Yes, overall, we are going to call the church to step up. And I think we're going to have some very practical and, uh, and tangible ways that we as the church can, can reach people, reach out to people, connect with people, offer dignity to people. We're going to pursue our neighbors and our community with love. We are going to do that. So yes, this series is a call to action for all of us. But as I've said before, as I said earlier, many of us in this community, we are also isolated. We, even the ones sitting in this room, we are feeling that, that weight of isolation and loneliness and all of that. We are facing it. We're trapped, some of us, trapped at home. Some of us are starved for human interaction. Some of us are isolated because of our, our age or a disability. Or maybe some of us have been cast aside by the world. Or it's entirely possible that some of us have dug a hole of isolation for ourselves and now we can't get out. So there are part, there's a part of this whole series which is designed for us as well. The words that we are going to be looking at this series for, for this, these next few weeks, this is not just a call to action for the church. This is a call to hope for you. 
And I believe that if you are isolated, these next few weeks may just be the journey that you need to escape and to find healing. Let me give you an example. Dignity. That's the the first topic for this week. Dignity. Now, we know that isolated people in our lives, we need to approach them like Jesus. We need to show them dignity and see them for who they really are. When we speak into their lives with who they really are, that is when they have have a desire to be drawn into something like a community. Noticing their humanity, calling them to something greater. Like I said, the path out of isolation begins right there. It begins with dignity. But if we are the isolated ones, for whatever reason, if that's us, then we need to be the woman at the well. We need to be the one who's listening to the words of Jesus. We need to start seeing ourselves the way that he sees us, as children of God, with a purpose, with value, with a destiny. Listen to me. If you're feeling isolated right now, you need to know that the days of your your shameful self-talk, the days of, of the shameful lies of your identity, those days are over. Those days are over. You are not defined by your worst mistake. You are not defined by your, the, the deepest injustice that's happened to you. No, you are a beloved child of our creator, God, and he wants to offer you living water. If you only knew, if you only knew what God has in store for you. Experience that dignity. You are created in the image of God. And here's what I think. I, I, I believe this. If you are created in the image of God, what that means is that there is a a, a part of God's character, a part of God's heart that is in you and it's not in in anyone else. It's yours to demonstrate to this world God's character. The question is, will you step up and live into that? Will you believe that you have something to offer this world? Will you accept the dignity of a Savior who loves you for who you are? Hold your head high. If you're isolated right now, stand tall. Have dignity in who you are because I will tell you the truth. You are never alone. You know why? Because you are a part of this family and we love you just for who you are. Let's pray. Father God, what a wild time that we are living through right now. And as we talk about these topics of isolation, man, we just, we think about just how broken our world is and how many people are trapped in isolating circumstances that they can't escape on their own, both inside and outside of the church. So Father, my prayer, I have two prayers. Number one, I pray that you would light a fire under us as a church, that we would not be content to watch our neighbors wallow in isolation. Send your Holy Spirit to open the door and give us uh, glimpses of how we could respond, ways to, to act, ways to reach out to our neighbors and offer love and dignity and hope. But Father, I also pray for those of us in this community who are isolated, who find themselves at the mercy of isolation and they, they don't know how to, how to get out, I pray, Father, that your spirit would speak truth to them now, that you would paint a picture of who, who you see them to be. And I, Father, I pray that you would give them the courage to believe that, the courage to say, yes, I know that I'm loved, and because of that, I'm willing to join the family of faith once more. God, give us the courage that we need to be the church and to love one another well, I pray. In the name of Jesus who showed us the way, Amen.